after the Buddha has <coughs> talked to Potapada and also um, Chitta was also present, it says, about um, the things that he only wants to point out, namely the way to Nibbana, and then showing that those who teach that one can make the world an entirely happy place are teaching a wrong doctrine. And he gave the two similes about the palace and about the beautiful girl. Then he gets back to the self. And he says, Potapada, there are three kinds of acquired self. Now the word acquired may not be so easily understood. One should think of it as an assumed self, the way that we assume ourselves to be. And he says there are three kinds. The gross acquired self, the mind-made acquired self, and the formless acquired self. What is the gross acquired self? It has form, is composed of the four great elements nourished by material food. Now, obviously, that's the body. It's also likened to the uh, realm of sensual desire, which is the one we live in. We live in the karma loka. Now, karma in this case is not karma and is spelled with one M. And it means desire, or sensual desire, actually. And loka, location realm. Same root. So we are living in that. We're living in one of the realms of sensual desire. And because of that, we have a lot of trouble with it, because it is constantly with us. It's a part of our makeup. And to surmount that, transcend it, is hard work. It's only possible if one can see dukkha clearly. If we see dukkha clearly enough, which is brought about by our essential desire, then we can eventually transcend it. Transcend it to the point where one day sensual desire is no longer our realm, even though we're still in the same location as we are here now. Now, there are also some uh, deva realms which are also part of the same karma loka. And it is said and explained that this gross material body is part of that realm, although in the deva realm we can't speak of such a gross body. So, possibly we should confine it to thinking of ourselves as human beings with a body which is made up of the four elements and nourished by material food. Now, the assumed self, and Puddhapada already did talk about that, that he believes actually that that was it, and then the Buddha asked him again, and then he went on to say that he thinks the next one or the next one was the self. We actually think of ourselves as being this person. And we have a great deal of either like or dislike for the body. Should it act up in a way we don't 
particularly appreciate pain, sickness, dying, then, of course, we dislike the whole affair. Should it be in good health and provide us with a lot of pleasant sense contacts, then we don't mind that we are the body. But we don't really think we are the body. We think we own the body. And But we have no difficulty in thinking of, of ourselves as this person from head to toe. And this is one, of course, of the obstacles that we have, not seeing the body for what it is. Buddha went on and on to say what it really was, that it was constantly having demands, that it was never totally fulfilling, that it was the carrier of our senses, and that it was in this realm a necessity to have, but that we should look upon it in the way of impersonal confrontation with the body, not as a personal ownership. Now, this personal ownership is contradicted by everything the body does. Nobody wants it to be sick. Nobody wants it to hurt. Nobody wants it to grow old and, let's face it, uglier than before. And nobody really wants it to die. And yet it does all of those things constantly. Except the dying it does only once. But the other things he does constantly, the body. And if we really owned it, why don't we have any say in the matter? Why can't we see this body made up of the four great elements, which we did in the contemplation, and realize that all materiality is made up of the four great elements? earth, fire, water, and air. And that it's being kept alive through material food, which in itself is also a lot of work and a lot of having to deal with so many things that if that body wasn't like that, life would be so much easier. For one thing, we wouldn't need toilets. We wouldn't need bathtubs or showers. We wouldn't need a kitchen. We wouldn't have to go shopping. We wouldn't have to clean up veggies, vegetables. We wouldn't have to go through all the rigmarole of spending practically half the day of getting the food ready for the rest of the day, to stay alive. And if you think for a moment of the houses you live in, or the flats you live in, just have a look at it in a mo for a moment. Sure, you can conjure up your own home in your mind. What does it contain? It contains everything for the body. There's a kitchen there, there's a bathroom there, 
There's a bedroom there, wherever you look. And in the living room, there's a comfortable chair or couch to sit on. Everything is arranged for the body. And <coughs> most of the time, if one lives on a third or fourth or fifth story of a building, there's an elevator so that one doesn't have to transport the body oneself, but it gets transported. So wherever we look, we have arranged for the body. No wonder we think that it's us us, or that we own it. And yet we need to look at it in a more objective way so that at least that assumption will finally disappear, that we own the body or that I am this person. We don't say I am the body. We usually just think of ourselves as this person looking in a particular way. And then we have great demands on this body. It shouldn't be too fat. It shouldn't be too thin. It shouldn't be too tall. It shouldn't be too short. It should have a certain color to it. It shouldn't have any um, blemishes. It uh, should look all right. And it shouldn't have any scratches or wounds. And of course, it shouldn't have any broken bones. And it shouldn't have anything that could possibly confront us with any kind of dukkha. But it won't do that. It just won't do it. It isn't complying. So this owner doesn't seem to have much of a say in the whole matter. And then one could, as a contemplation, and my new contemplation is the inside path. In other words, when the, con- when the meditation has become concentrated, it's very good to look at that afterwards. One can have a look whether one can find the owner. How do we find the owner of this? We can certainly find the body. It's very easy. All we have to do is look or touch. But where's this owner? Then we give the owner a name. The owner is me. But where? How? How can we find that? When we really get into that, we'll know that we can't find the owner. And this is actually what the Buddha is trying to explain to Padapada in very succinct terms, and we'll see what he says about it in a moment. So, that gross-assumed self is something that we also connect to our minds. We don't just think of ourselves as being this person that looks into the mirror, but we are really concerned with that, what comes at us through the mirror. That's why we don't have mirrors in the nunneries and monasteries much better not to have a look. But in the mirror, we see me. 
and we're really convinced. We believe our optical illusion. And our optics are extremely limited. They cannot look into the most profound depths. They can look only superficially. They can look at the outer appearance. And that's all. Just the outer appearance. Yet that belief is so ingrained that people spend, some people, spend all day, all day long, just to get that for the body which they believe will keep the body in order. Now that we should keep the body in order is a, is a second uh, matter. We should. But spending all day on it is a bit exaggerated. And yet people do, because it's total identification. Me and my body, or my body and me, or whichever way we want to pronounce it. And it's very hard to convince anyone of the fallacy of this assumption. He's having a quite a difficult time with Potapada, as we've seen. It's not easy. And Potapada doesn't really get the whole thing in the end, but enough to start practicing. It's very difficult to convince anyone. Actually, what one has to do is to convince oneself. And one can only do that through calm and insight. The calm mind gains insight. It can't help it. It sees things in a different light. Now then we have the second kind of a body which we assume to be and then he says what is the mind made self? The second kind of a self, sorry. It has form complete with all its parts not defective in any sense organ. Now the mind made self is when we identify with the observer, with the thoughts, with the reactions, with our feelings, with our sense contacts. It's our mind. We assume that to be me. Now, having practiced some time, one gets stuck with the observer, the knower. And I have already mentioned this, and I'll mention it again. We should have a look at the known and try to find the knower. There is nobody there at the knower. We're assuming it. And that's why the Buddha says the acquired self or the assumed self. This is such a radical teaching that obviously it's not easy to really get the hang of that because it goes contrary to everything that humanity believes in and does. That's why we need to look at the dukkha that arises out of everything that humanity believes and does. And when we see that clearly in ourselves, not those poor people out there that don't know what they're doing, no, me, what's my dukkha? Actually knowing that, 
then one comes nearer to the truth because then one realizes that what humanity believes in and does is only in the uh, considerations that bring dukkha. Everything that we believe in, everything that we do, it's always geared towards self. And self brings dukkha. And so seeing that, we get a bit of an idea what the Buddha was trying to say. He said himself, it, was, it is difficult to really have a feeling for his teaching because we are doing everything opposed to it. We are 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And naturally, our questions would then be concerned with looking at things from that standpoint. That's why when we talk about absolute truth, which is what the Buddha is doing here, we cannot counter that with questions on the relative level. They just don't ever meet. They're like two railway tracks that just don't go on the same level. One's below and one's above, and they don't meet. So the question which often arises, if there is no self or no me, who is sitting here meditating? They two don't meet. On the relative level, it's me or you. But on the absolute level, it's nobody. So we can't, and the Buddha also couldn't, answer relative questions with absoluteness and sometimes he spoke on the relative level so we have to actually know when the one is taking place and when the other is taking place when he's talking about mindfulness guarding the sense doors clear awareness morality he's talking on the relative level because that's me trying to do that. But when he's talking about an assumed self, one that we think must be the mind, and of course we lump the body in with it, because after all, if I'm a self, I've got to have both somehow or other. But the mind must be the one that's uh, more important, because obviously the body disintegrates at death. So when he talks about a pos uh, an absolute at the, on that level, we can't then refer to the relative. We can only either accept what is being said by the Buddha and try to investigate it or let it go until such time that the meditation is strong enough to investigate it and that's actually the only two choices we have we have a third one which is totally counterproductive we can also disbelieve it that there's no self but that's counterproductive because that's not going to get us anywhere 
that's going to leave us right there where we are now and where we always have been when we believe fully and wholeheartedly in myself. As long as we believe fully and wholeheartedly in myself, we will try to see the world from that standpoint. And that standpoint is a very unsatisfactory one because myself is over on one side and the world is over there. So I'm not only an onlooker and an observer, but I'm also very often an enemy because the world isn't doing what I want it to do. Obviously. It has no idea what I want. And everybody's concerned with their own self. So they're all having the same problem. So seeing the world from the standpoint of, uh, standpoint of myself is that whole unsatisfactory situation in which practically everyone finds themselves without actually realizing it. It's that duality system. The duality of me here and the whole world over there. It's very frightening and scary because one knows oneself to be fairly impotent. There's a one little person and the whole world over there. How am I going to cope? And this is also how people stop coping when it gets too much for them. Most of us don't stop coping. We just continue to distract ourselves. We get busy. We've got so much to do, we have no time to think about it. And if we have no time to think about it, it can't scare us, which is one way of coping. But it certainly does not eliminate decay, disease, and death, and all that is mine, dear, and delightful will change and vanish. It certainly doesn't eliminate our unfortunate reactions. It doesn't eliminate anything. It just eliminates the greatest of the fears which on one level is fine because when we stop coping we can't do anything anymore. But it certainly doesn't bring any kind of removal of dukkha. Dukkha stays with us. That's why the Buddha keeps coming back to the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths which start out with existence is dukkha. Not having seen that very first Noble Truth, of course, one doesn't have an entry. That's, so to say, the uh, entry door, how we get in. So with the mind-made assumed self, we again have that situation where, belie- where we believe that everything that's happening within us is happening to me, and that's how we react. And then we realize the dukkha from the reaction. Our reactions are practically always dukkha-producing. And we can only react because we believe this to be happening to a me. This me which is um, imprisoned and bounded by our skin and which we like to protect and cherish and often can't do it. So this mind-made self is also likened to the self which is apparent 
in the fine material jhanas. There is an observer, even though that observer becomes very small, as in the fourth, is there still one there in all four of them. So in the fine material realm, which are the four lower jhanas, the mind-made self is strictly the observer, because at that time there's no body consciousness. But on the everyday level, the mind-made self, the assumed self made by the mind, is just what we all experience. And we experience it in a way which seems utterly trustworthy. We experience it over and over again. And then everybody else is experiencing it and acting upon it. And so one doesn't really have any doubts about that self until one comes into contact with the depth of the Buddha's teaching. And this is what we're doing here. This belongs to the depth of the Buddha's teaching. There are many other parts of the teaching which refer to our relative self, where we are supposed to adhere to certain ways of changing our negativities into positivities. But here we're getting actually into the real depth. And that is the first time when one confronts such a thing. Now, it can be found also in other religions, but it's not that explicit. It's mentioned, but it's not that explicit. The mystics of all religious persuasions always knew it, always tried to express it and used to usually express it in a way which was in conformance with their teaching. So it's not always accessible. It's also happened to them in an instant of recognition, which is hard to describe. So people have taken practically no notice of. And yet it exists in the writings of the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages. Practically nobody takes any notice of that. There are some people who study it, scholastics. There might be even some who try to practice it. But the uh, bulk of humanity couldn't care less and are always trying to find the way out of Dukkha outside of themselves. How often have we tried? Everything that we do is a trial to get out of Dukkha. And sometimes that's quite valid because otherwise our Dukkha might overwhelm us. But if we only knew that we're doing it, because of that, then we'd be all right. But we don't. We have all sorts of 
ideas and justifications why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing it because we have a responsibility. We're doing it because nobody else wants to do it. We're doing it because it has to be done. We're doing it because it's um, very um, brings knowledge. There are all sorts of ideas why we're doing what we're doing. If we were just clear on the point that what we're doing is trying to get out of dukkha and then go ahead and do it, we'd have insight. There isn't anything other than that. That's why the enlightenment statement of the Buddha is all about dukkha. And that's why people think it's very negative, but it's not. It's trying to show us the reality and then trying to show us the way out of that reality. So the mind-made um, assumed self is no difficulty for us. We know what we are assuming, assuming to be. And then the third one is, what is the formless acquired self? It's without form and made up of perception. So this is likened to the higher jhanas, where there is no, neither physical form, nor any mental form, because in the infinity of space and the infinity of consciousness, there is nothing that has any boundary. But there's perception. If there weren't perce- well, was not any perception, we wouldn't know that we've been connected to infinite space and infinite consciousness. So obviously then we assume that perception is so. Now, perception, awareness, consciousness. That's our last resort then. If we've given up on the body, and if we've given up on the mind, the thoughts, the feelings, and even the observer, we at least are left with the consciousness. That must be me. Because whose could it be? that we're still completely immersed in duality at that time does not often strike one. The duality of my own perception as opposed to your perception. So maybe you can do the sixth jhana and have perception of that and maybe I can't, so I don't have that consciousness. Total duality, the consciousness which then brings about two possibilities, both damaging. One is a feeling of superiority. I can do more than you can do, or anything you can do, I can do better than you. Or a feeling of inferiority. Both are totally misplaced. Perception is. There is universal consciousness. Consciousness is. We can use both words. Because when we just use the word perception, we might get back to thinking it's only the labeling. But what is talked about here is actually our 
consciousness. There's a story about that, how, to, how it's possible to view others. A story is about a senior monk who went on a walk with some junior monks in the forest. And some bandits came and uh, surrounded them, surrounded this group of monks, and said that they wanted one monk to come with them so that one that the uh, monastery would have to pay a large amount to them to get him back. And the senior monk was to choose which one they were going to take with them. So he remained quiet, didn't say anything. And they asked him again, which one are we taking? And they asked the third time, and he remained quiet. And they got, of course, irate and angry. And then they said to him, why aren't you answering? What's the matter with you? And he said, if I point out to one of the junior monks and say that you can take him, that means that I'm thinking of him as being less worthy than the others. If I point to myself, I'm thinking of myself as being less worthy than the others. Since there's no distinction between any of us, I can't point to anyone. They were so impressed with that that they left. And that's the story. All one and the same. No duality. Obviously, he had that down pat, that there's no duality. As long as we believe in a personal self, identity, entity, very limited, very dependent on sense contact, Dukkha will never disappear. It keeps on coming. And this is what the Buddha says here. He says, But I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong, and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. So what he's saying is that he's teaching to get rid of the gross assumed self, the body self, and he then repeats the same thing about the mind self and the formless self, which is only consciousness. He repeats it three times, exactly the same. He teaches a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self. Now, that sentence is widely misunderstood to be annihilation. Actually, what should be said and what he says many times in other suttas and possibly it's just left out, I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the illusion of the assumed 
We're not getting rid of anything that actually exists. We're getting rid of a mind-made illusion. And that's why it cannot be likened to annihilation. It can be not likened to killing anything. It's not really getting rid of anything other than a mind state. And since we're all quite capable of getting rid of a mind state sometimes, why not get rid of that one? We have to see the necessity for it and the possibility for it. When we see the necessity, it means that we've seen our dukkha. And when we've seen the ability to do it, it means we've been able to meditate. We can't just say, okay, I won't believe in itself. It's not possible to get rid of the illusion that way. We have to experience at least once what it's like to be without that illusion. And that's what the Buddha teaches. That's why he's teaching the jhanas which lead the mind to that ability where it can actually, through concentration and through the inside, that the only thing to do to get rid of dukkha is to get rid of that illusion, have a moment of absolute nothingness. A moment where there's no perception. A moment where there is no self. And when that moment has happened, the result is so freeing and liberating, so relieving, so joyous, and has such a feeling in it of being utterly and completely grateful that one knows that's the truth. But to get there, one's got to concentrate. Of course, two things are necessary. The concentration for the mind to be one-pointed and not waver and not wander off. That's one thing. And the second thing that's necessary is to see that this is what one can do. When we see that this is what we can do, will definitely try to do it, but only after having seen that this is the most important thing we can do in this life. Nothing else compares with it. Now, so he says he's teaching this uh, doctrine where we can get rid of, and I'll put in the illusion of this assumed self, and through that, Defiling mental states disappear, states tending to purification grow strong, and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now. The purity and perfection of insight. The word wisdom can always be exchanged with the word insight. There's no difference. But the word wisdom is the one that's being used in the Noble Eightfold Path. So, it's often exchangeable. We can say wisdom inside, and then we've got both. 
and having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. Now, this is a very important aspect also. There's no grace. One's got to realize and attain it by one's own super-knowledge. And the word super-knowledge is well chosen because it isn't just knowledge. It's an entirely different thing from knowing something. It's having experienced it and not being in any doubt what that experience is. So that's called super-knowledge here, and which is a good word because it denotes something. It tells us that there's something else other than knowing. There is this ex- the understood experience. And one gains it by oneself through one's own efforts. Nobody does a thing for one. The Buddha called himself, I'm just the shower of the way. All that a teacher does is pointing to the various ways one can actually go ahead and try. Nobody can do anything for one. One can, however, say that at the time of the Buddha, there were quite a number of people who became enlightened after hearing one Dhamma discourse. That was because the Buddha was the one who was saying them. The feeling behind that. And also because he elicited enormous devotion where the heart is quite open. And in India, devotion is not that difficult to find. In the West, we haven't got a great um, tradition for devotion. So it's the more difficult. And uh, I think this must be about the 30th discourse in this course. So it's not the same thing as when the Buddha spoke. But on the other hand, There is so much guidance from the Buddha that all we need to do is really follow that. So one uh, attains it by one's own super-knowledge, realizing it and attaining it. Realizing is the experience, and through the understanding of it, one has attained it. Um, Now, he also says that having been able to do that, defiling mental states disappear. So all the mental states that one's going to have after having realized completely the non-self will no longer be in any way negative. That's how one can check out how far one has got it's called reviewing knowledge. With reviewing knowledge, one checks one's own mental states. And if there aren't any ever again that are of any negativity and one has experienced the non-self, then obviously one has come to the end of the road. And the states tending to purification grow strong 
So everything within that person, without a, that illusion of self, is pure and clear. Because it's only the idea of self, that illusory self, that makes hate and greed arise. The self wants something for itself. Or it wants to get rid of something that it has. It wants a protection and it wants the opportunities for sensual gratification and it wants to be safe. I think we all know that there is no safety in the world anywhere. People do think they can buy insurances by which they can be somewhat safe. Obviously, within, they feel just as unsafe as before. But the insurance company, of course, grows rich from that. So, we try every possible way to be safe. Safe who? The self, of course. If there's no self, there's nobody that needs to be safe. That just is. Mind and body are, and nothing else. If one has a great resistance to this doctrine, one can tell from that how attached one is to self. That's all. And then one needs to get a little more dukkha, which one usually will. And as one gets a little more dukkha, then the mind starts wondering, why am I having all this dukkha? Must be the fault of this or that. And then, of course, one day one comes to the conclusion, it's not. It's sitting within me. Of this teaching, one just sticks to the practice. And as one practices, things change. Things change to the point where states tending to purification grow stronger. Purification of mind and heart. Now, he has only mentioned mental, but that just means that in, the, in Pali, the mind and mental formations are inclusive. The emotions are meant to. So what we can say is the purification of mind and heart. Now the purification of mind and heart, we already heard more than once, I think, is a substitution with the opposite. Substitution of the negative with the positive. The substitution because then our inner being is rid of that very unpleasant feeling of dislike, ill will, rejection, resistance, however justified we think they are. Obviously they're not. But even if we believe them to be justified, they create great unhappiness within. So keeping them is nothing but 
foolishness. So the only thing to do with them is the purification aspect of substitution. Once we have learned substitution and can do it well, we will be able to drop whatever is not conducive to happiness. And it's interesting to sometimes watch the faces of people walking on the street. It's very difficult to find a happy face. Very difficult. I sometimes do that. In any city of the world. So, happiness escapes us because of our own inner mental and emotional state. And here the Buddha promises and says, the doctrine to get rid of this assumed self will definitely bring about the disappearance of defiling mental states so that there's purity within. And maybe we can actually relate to that that our defiling mental states are always concerned with me, nothing else. Sometimes we also have this tendency to think um, the defiling mental state is concerned with somebody else because that other person is doing something bad, not to me but to another person, and so I get angry and upset. Being angry and upset is a defiling mental state. That the other person is doing something bad might be quite true. But to get angry and upset is useless. There are better ways of dealing with that. So we have absolutely no excuses unless we like to make them. And that's again the self making excuses for the self. Who else? Then he says, now, Potapada, you might think, perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear, and yet one might still be unhappy. But that's not how it should be regarded. If defiling mental, mental states disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develops. So what the Buddha is saying that if you now think that even if you have no defiling mental states, there could still be unhappiness because you haven't really experienced it. And Potapada hasn't practiced, so he has no idea what can happen. So the Buddha sort of preempts the next question and says, well, if you think that, you're thinking wrongly because if they disappear, only happiness and delight develops. Tranquility, mindfulness, and clear awareness, and that is a happy state. So, he's also telling us that being happy does not mean that one is jumping up and down for joy or feeling totally elevated. That happiness comes from the fact that we are clear clearly aware, mindful, and tranquil, which is actually equanimity. 
and equanimity and indifference must not be confused. It's easy to do that. Indifference arises when there is no real connection. But equanimity is tranquility coupled with mindfulness and clear awareness. Now we're practicing mindfulness. For better or for worse, whatever we're doing, we're practicing it. Meditating is being mindful of the meditation subject. Mindfulness, walking meditation is mindfulness. Outside of meditation, being mindful of what one is doing. But in a state where there's no defilement at all, mindfulness becomes the natural state and clear awareness becomes the natural state. Clear awareness is not always concerned with oneself. Clear awareness also goes to the point of seeing what other people are doing and never having any dislike for it, but only compassion. That also belongs to clear awareness because the mind is clear, so it can see without rejection. And the tranquility which is mentioned is, of course, part of equanimity. It's also part of our meditation state. But as we bring it into daily life, then it becomes the natural state. So the Buddha is saying, you mustn't think that being happy means that you're constantly laughing and and smiling and uh, uh, having all sorts of wonderful inner experiences devas or whatever, but it's being tranquil and mindful and clearly aware. Clearly aware also is another word for having insight, insight wisdom. So he's preempting Potapada's question about happiness. And then he repeats this for getting rid of the illusion of the mind made acquired self, the illusion of the formless acquired self. And then he says, Potapada, if others ask us, what friend is this gross acquired self whose abandonment you preach? Being so asked, we should reply, this is that gross acquired self for the getting rid of which which we teach a doctrine. A doctrine which then brings happiness. Now, when it says this is, (coughs) what is meant is this is. The point is pointing to oneself. This is the gross assumed self. And the same goes on for the other two, the mind made and the formless one. And again, The Buddha says, this is, this, me. That is the assumed self. Because there's nothing within mind or body which can ever proclaim me. It's very interesting to check that out. There's nothing within us which can say, I'm the owner. There's nothing within us which can say, I'm the knower. 
It's a mental formation. So he's pointing to the gross assumed self as the body, the gross, the uh, mind-made assumed self as the uh, mind and then the consciousness. So saying that to Potapada, he now says, What do you think, Potapada? Does not that statement turn out to be well-founded? Certainly, Lord. It is just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace which was below that palace. They might say to him, Well, now, this staircase for a palace that you're building, do you know whether the palace will face east or west, north or south, or whether it will be high, low, or medium height? And he would say, This staircase is right under the palace. Don't you think that man's statement would be well-founded? Certainly, Lord. And then he says, In just the same way, Potapada, if others ask us, what is the gross assumed self, the mind-made assumed self, the formless assumed self, we reply, this is this acquired self, for the getting rid of which we teach a doctrine, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending to purification grow strong, and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now, having realized and attained it by one's own super-knowledge. Don't you think that statement is well-founded? Certainly, Lord. So he's not actually asking for the Pada to be able to um, practice this. He's just asking him whether he thinks that the doctrine is well-founded, and Potapada agrees it is. He says, yes, it does make sense. Now, another important aspect of this is that as one is able to let go of this assumed self, and the word assumed is much clearer than the word acquired, and the defiling mental states disappear, one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now. One not only gains it, one remains in it. In other words, insight can never be lost. And this is an important point which I'd like to make right now. Calm and tranquil states of meditation can be lost any time if we don't practice. Very easy. We don't practice we lose them very quickly. But any insight gained can never be lost. It will always remain with us because it changes our whole attitude and it changes our whole demeanor and feeling within. Insight changes us. So while we need the tranquility to gain insight. We can lose the tranquility anytime. And that's why I have said many times after the meditative absorptions or after any concentrated meditation inquire what have I learned from it? What is the insight that I can gain from this experience? There's the only insights which will change us and remain with us are those 
that we have experienced. What the Buddha is telling Puttapada will not change him to any great extent. He's now gaining confidence in the Buddha's teaching and will start to practice. We will hear that at the end. He's going to start practicing. But he won't be changed yet. The only change that comes about is through the experience which we have understood and which brings us insight. So, after the mind has been calm to any extent whatsoever, never mind deep or medium or on the surface, that's the time to look. To look, where's my dukkha? Do I know that it comes from me, myself? Where's this self that I so heartily believe in or with which I constantly am working? Where is it? How can I find it? What part of me? Or can I see the impermanence of the whole flux and flow of everything that exists and thereby get a different feeling for the solidity which presumably we are. Because the flux and flow speaks against that solidity. So any one of these three, Anicca, Dukkha or Anatta, can be investigated after one gets a bit of calm in the meditation, whatever much calm one can produce. And then the mind is also willing and able to be objective. And as it's objective, it isn't that dualistic. The objectivity takes away some of the dualism with which we operate all the time. When we are subjective, this is me and this is you, we are in total duality. But when we are objectively watching ourselves, we can let go of that to some extent and see things in a more realistic light. All of that tends towards purification and gains for us purity and perfection of wisdom insight. Wisdom insight is dependent upon purity. Perfection of it is, of course, the final, the uh, enlightenment state. But purity is a prerequisite. If there's no purity within it's very difficult to look at anything. So meditation also brings about purification. So we have that, again, as our support system. And that we can remain in that is nothing other than an indication that we should be very careful with any insight that we have attained anything to reinforce it through bringing it up again and again and anchoring it in the mind so that as we anchor it in the mind we have access to it all the time and can use it. 
I think this is a good spot uh, to stop because now Chitta starts talking. Now he's got questions. I think Potapada has run out of questions. Yes. So he's getting to it. <laughs> 